I'm Chris Reback. We know healthcare can be confusing, never mind the actual medical care itself. It's also costly. And from changing coverage to high deductibles to co-pays and more, the question remains, who pays? Jonathan Wick has an answer. Wick is a principal in healthcare strategy at TransUnion Healthcare. He's also author of Healthcare Revolution, The Patient is the New Payer. Wick has spent much of his career examining the healthcare payments transformation. From his experience and research, Wick outlines a system where, as he's written, on average, healthcare consumers are now responsible for 30 to 35% of their healthcare bill. Patient payment and collection practices are highly complex, and with high deductibles, patients have evolved into a primary payer source. Further, as you'll hear, Wick acknowledges the system means too many patients ultimately can face debilitating medical debt. Wick outlines a go-forward approach that reimagines the patient as a consumer and offers ways in which payers, providers, and patients must come together in new ways to address our health care crisis. It's an important and timely conversation, so let's get to it. Here's my discussion with Jonathan Wick. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Chris. Happy to be here. So this is such an important topic, um, but it's also often a confusing topic. So let's start with some context. What is the broad history of health insurance? And more specifically, how has healthcare financing evolved over the years? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in the book, we talk about uh, the birth of health insurance. It's, it's the first chapter, and it starts with barber poles, believe it or not. And doctors worked in barber shops. They gave you a haircut and a physical. The, the stripes on the barber pole actually uh, relate to bloodletting, and that that was something that they had. The, the, the red, white, and blue had meaning, believe it or not. I'll let you look that part up in the book. But wow. um, as far as insurance companies go, um, uh, you know, doctors kind of practiced way back when, um, you know, they were in horse drawn carriages and, and did house calls to people who were sick and delivered babies. You know, you, you remember the old Westerns where they boiled water and <laughs> stuff, stuff yeah. and the doc would come over and make sure everything was okay. Um, uh, you know, as industry started to come up, both with uh, railroads and, and, and manufacturing and things, um, the, the railroads really probably were the first to kind of start contracting for insurance on a group level. Um, just because they had so many workers that were getting injured and docs were trying to get paid, and they, they felt that there should be some, uh, and it wasn't for any uh, benefit to the employee. It was that they wanted their employees to get better faster, so they wanted to almost make a reservation like in a restaurant huh. to have those docs, quote, available <laughs> to be yeah. able to fix their it, workers. Um, it, it was like that term. It, yeah, go ahead. It, it was like the precursor to opentable.com. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, from that, we, we, we've got a first fee schedule to the book. It's kind of fun to look at. It, it talks about, you know, docs in Virginia that, that had the cost to, like, amputate an arm was, like, 10 bucks To deliver a baby, it was 20 A dozen pills was $0.25. Cents. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, and, and we really started to see Blue Cross as the first. That was the first kind of hospital ward, if you will, that um, uh, contracted with some of these workers uh, and, and employers, like I said, to kind of help. Uh, get them back to work and help their families get back to work. And then the docs were like, well, hey, I want to create insurance too. So they created Blue Shield. And then from that, we, you know, here we are, we've got Medicare, Medicaid, um, uh, just a proliferation of insurance. And, and, you know, I think what's happened is, is technology and utilization. Um, and I, I would argue just how some of our taxes are structured. Um, and, and some of those things have, have really accelerated the healthcare costs, population, 
some of our behaviors. We talk through that. Um, and now we've got this, this divide. It's this giant chasm, if you will, between, you know, what should be paid under insurance, what is debatable to be paid under insurance, what's affordable, what's not. And um, one of the quotes in the book that I love the absolute best is, you can't have affordable insurance for an unaffordable product. Huh. And so we've, we've got, we've got a, a really interesting model right now to where it's kind of pulling at the threads <laughs> and unraveling very very quickly. I, I think there's there's solutions in there that work, but that's kind of a brief history uh, of where we ended up, you know, with the HMOs, the PPOs, and all that stuff coming along to try to figure out how to incentivize some of that behavior to keep those costs in check and premiums down, but we, we haven't seen much success there. No, we, we haven't, and it is an incredible history. I, I want to ask you, I mean, the strings that you are talking about um, and the pulling on and the that, that split between how expensive the care is, and so how do we create an insurance system um, and a payment system so that uh, docs can get paid what they need, hospitals can get what they need, patients can get the care they need at the cost that they can afford, um, and and that healthcare is available. Well, just one follow-up though on on that on the fascinating history component. So I always was under the impression so, healthcare in the U.S. is tied obviously significantly to the employer. And I always was yeah. under the impression that that was a post-World War II phenomenon where employers were looking to yeah. insert additional benefits when there was so much employment opportunity, um, so to, to insert that as a benefit to help differentiate. And what you're describing is, did, did, did the idea then actually originally come from the railroads? Was that what inspired the post-World War II insertion of insurance as a benefit for employers, or were those disconnected and, and it just so happened the railroads had done it, uh, whatever, 50 years previous? Yeah, I think, like I said, the railroads had a model. Yeah, I skipped over that part. Like the, the birth of insurance really was from a post-World War II tax uh, 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 tax um, a benefit, which actually still exists today, interestingly enough, um, in, in the effort to not have inflationary damage that was caused by World War I, we saw in Germany, um, the government, I can't remember the president at the time, but, but that, that president had said, you cannot give raises, we're going to give you an inflationary cap. Um, and so uh, the employees were like, well, how do I attract employees here? I'm kind of done with all the other things. I can't pay them, you know, pay them, pay them more. So I'm going to offer health benefits as a benefit. And so we are, in a unique way, one of the few countries in the industrialized world that offers insurance as part of an employee salary package. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that also has caused some uh, consternation. You know, if employers had their way, most of them um, would probably tell you they would not want to be in that position today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. Largest expenses. Um, but uh, they, they are nonetheless, and it's very hard to get rid of it. Now, we saw some things in legislation um, start to remove some of the ACA provisions in that, but I haven't seen anything in the commercial market from a tax benefit anyway go away. But, um, yeah, I think it's, an, an, it's, almost, it's not an entitlement now, but it's an expectation that when you take a job of some sort that health benefits are part of that job. The law um, doesn't require an employer to offer insurance. A lot of people don't know that. It actually is just something that they do from a competitive standpoint. There isn't anything that says, now, if you offer insurance, there's a whole litany, litany I'm sorry, of laws that you have to follow yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you're offering it. Um, which, which, but, but you don't have to, you're not required, at least not anymore, um, to uh, to offer insurance as an employer, but you do because you because you have to retract those folks and get them there, and and when you do, you got to follow all those those rules that our government have. 
they we have, our our government has just a couple of rules. I think there's I think there's one or two. But but the uh, another yeah. aspect of what you're saying that's so fascinating of of the connection between insurance and employment is we're in an age where the nature of work is evolving really quickly. And so the right. that that historical tie, even just let's just say going back to the World War II, post World War II model, um, as as the nature of work evolves, um, it will be interesting from my point of view to yeah. see what type of competitive market pressures um, start to get created around what what is insurance, how does one have insurance as one you know switches from job to job to job, or maybe is in more of an individual um, employment market, uh, what does insurance look like as the nature of work changes? Yeah, I think you're going to see, you know, um, it'd be a great topic for the next book, but I think you're going to see like um, an evolution, if you will, of direct direct to provider contracting to where insurance isn't necessarily there. So employers may, you know, in, entice um, uh, the hospitals directly um, if, if they're going to be here and compete with each other. So, you know, you're, you're starting to see that now at the Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway, um, that that happening now. Um, and uh, they're testing it on their own employees, and um, they're hiring healthcare folks in there. They're they're being very quiet about it, but they basically are packaging a, an integrated delivery network without an insurance company. Um, there isn't an insurance company in that deal at all. Yeah. There may be a, a clearinghouse, you know, that's helping process the claims and things, but the the, the utilization review and the actuarial stuff is, is frankly not happening. So there's something to that, and I think with that they're going to try to you know. Uh, educate their employees. And I think health literacy is a big problem right now in our country. The emergency room seems to be the, 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 uh, uh care du jour for most things. People try to self treat themselves or delay things because they're fe- fearful about the cost or, um, you know, they went to the, the they'll, they'll go to their primary care. But the majority of folks are like, Oh, the emergency room is there and they'll help me if something really bad happens, which is what they're there for. But they're going there for lots of things that aren't for an emergency room. And that's a very expensive, um, uh, inefficient, I would argue, too, way to get health care. Um, they're designed to save lives, and they do it very, very well. But they've got lots of resources there, lots of things happening in that process. And it's kind of like throwing a, a wrench into a giant engine. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it spins back off. No, well, it's- so I think... Yeah, it's not meant to be a primary care facility. It, it's an emergent yeah. care facility and a, an emergency care yeah. facility, and that's what it's meant to be. So we have we, we've covered a little bit the history, and and you've started to touch on the future of of healthcare. Yeah. Um, let's talk about right now. Um, the patient is the new payer. What do you mean? Yeah. So right now, patients have about a third of a hospital of a healthcare bill um, if they have insurance. And, and what I mean by that is about, oh, 15, 20 years ago um, with insurance, you know, and we had plans like that if we're, if we're old enough. We remember when we paid about 10 or 100 bucks for most things and it was 10% or 90% on stuff that was kind of expensive, like going to the hospital or having a, a major surgery, right? We remember those plans. Um, so, yeah, you, you just kind of expected it. Billing was a lot simpler back then, too. You, you, you knew roughly that when a bill went over that had a really big number on it, it would come down to a smaller number and you'd be on the hook for 10 percent of that or something. That number's tripled. And, it, and I don't see it not stopping um, uh, from a or, or idling back at all from a from a growth standpoint. So now it's it's three three hundred dollars or 30 percent. And that's oh, that's a that that adds expenses uh, across the board. Patients are horrible payers. 
Um, we rank healthcare bills as number seven behind mortgage, rent, um, cell phones, groceries, um, and other things. Uh, we don't want to pay them. Um, when we get them, they're confusing. Uh, we hope that they'll go down when the next one comes because we know another one's coming. And we hope that someone will call us and explain it to us so that we understand it and then actually want to understand the value and then feel like we should pay. It's a very reverse retail type scenario when you get a healthcare bill. I didn't realize it was that much. I don't think they did all that good of a job, but it's too late, right? They already did it. Very mechanic, like if you like, but, uh, with a car that kind of got fixed with a bad estimate, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so. Yeah, and, and so, but but um, like that like that analogy, uh, you know, yeah. maybe you're a little bit more handy with cars than I am, but I go in and I I don't know what they're talking about. You know, under the hood right. is a complete mystery to me. Very similar, and and I think that's the point of your analogy. Very similar right. to underneath the hood of my own body inside my. You know, I I don't. You know, when when you get a medical bill, I understand it. I agree with you. I understand it about as little as I understand the bill that I get from a car mechanic. And it's, it is precisely, and I think, you know, there's some, that health literacy and, and you're starting to see this word transparency, which I call the T word in the book because it's being used to, I think, uh, uh, broadly, um, and, and the definition needs a little bit of refinement. But I think that transparency in delivery and in cost and things like that makes sense. Hey, we're going to do this test because the reason I have to do this one that's more expensive versus that one is because we don't slow down for a minute and really discuss those things. Um, you know, when we buy a good that we really want, like an iPhone or a car or a television set, that experience is at a much, much slower pace than healthcare, and it's more consumer-directed. But I would argue a lot of the things that happen in healthcare don't need to be accelerated at the level that they are, but for some reason they just are. Um, emergency room completely falls out of this and, and, you know, sudden onset illnesses, but that's 20% of the eight of the, of the, of all the care that's probably delivered is that, is that part, um, uh, to, to, to your normal average American, the, the other 80% of the stuff, it's like, you go to the doctor, the doctor's like, yeah, I need to quote, pop the hood and find out what's going on. We're going to run some tests and we'll see what, what it is. I think it's this, I think it's that, uh, again, not very familiar with it, but there is ever, if rarely a, a discussion on the, on the cost, you know, this is what I think that stuff's going to run. And I think that's just out of, uh, not having the cost there. I think it's out of a, 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 a philosophical, um, almost ethical type discussion about whether or not a physician should know what things cost as they're ordering or should they just practice medicine, mm. um, which is tough, right? We've yeah. got to overcome that someday it, with patients as payer. But that's where we've ended up is that we can't we, – we're pushing towards this retail type experience, but we've got a few things we've got to figure out in terms of pricing and the actual – golly, conversation that's going to have to start happening. Hey, I mean, imagine it like a vacuum. Your doc's telling you, well, I got good, better, and best here. <laughs> you know? and we all want best, but maybe we can't afford best. Maybe we can't afford the MRI. Maybe we can only afford the x-ray. Or maybe we, can, we can't afford the surgery. We can only afford the, the medications and the therapy. I don't know. It gets really weird when you start traveling that path. Um, but, it, you know, insurance companies can't, and the, comp- and the country, frankly, can't, the government, spending trillions of dollars, can't, you know, afford to pay for the best all the time without some fundamental changes in our tax base and, and some other things, which, which um, uh, 
would be interesting to talk through as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and no doubt it, it, it would be. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question, another question about um, the, the, the patient as the payer. Um, in, in the book, sure. you, you cite the TransUnion healthcare analysis that revealed the patients experienced an 11%, 11% increase in average out-of-pocket costs during 2017. Yeah. I, I don't know if you have 2018 data and, and if it's what's happened with 2018, but um, that obviously will present a huge potential problem for nearly everyone in the ecosystem. What advice do you have for healthcare executives around navigating this new era of patient payments, particularly when, assuming that 2018 data show the same thing, um, patients are experiencing, you know, two double-digit increases in average out-of-pocket costs? Yeah. So I think that trend is going to continue. I don't have the data in front of me, but yeah, it is accelerating. And I'll, I'll try to share it with you, Chris, when I, when I get back to the office next week. They, they, um, you know, we, we know why that is. We all, most of us that have health insurance, it, it hasn't gone down. Our premiums have, we hope they stay flat from year to year. And sometimes they do. And sometimes the benefits may even stay flat. But um, a, a few things are happening. One, the deductibles and coinsurance tend to go up. And so, if you've been on a plan for a while and you're with a pretty large employer, those things may stay pretty static, but that's the, that's the exception, not the rule. Most other types of insurance plans that, uh, that have the, the mid to small employer um, have accelerators on them that, that increase the coinsurance because they're pr- frankly trying to keep premium in check because you've got this cost happening on the other side, new technology, aging populations, a sicker population, um, uh, higher utilization. I think, you know, as, as we see, Facilities going up like Starbucks. I don't know what your neighborhood's like, but mine, there's there's facilities going up everywhere, and they're all half full. <laughs> so it's really interesting to understand like where all that money is going and what's happening. Um, patients have to pay into that system to help fund some of those things. I love having the access. I think it's great, but there's an infrastructure there, and 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 uh, and there's a cost to every um, thing that we add to the system, right? And so I think hospitals are, 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 uh, and health systems are, are trying to meet the need of the patient consumer the best way they can. Um, I gave that example through Access. In terms of payment, as patient as payer, they're, I, I'm seeing more momentum now than when the book came out. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think about one in 10 shoppers or one in 10 people shopped for health care um, when, I, when I wrote the book a, a couple years ago. Um, it's about three in 10 now. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, that's a pretty big jump. And I think that's because, you know, our legislation and, and um, uh, our, our media and, our, and just our general awareness of the population has, has, has finally came to pass that, that health care is really expensive. You can't – there aren't too many people in our country that think health care is cheap now, I think. So that's one – I don't know if I would call that an accomplishment, but that's an awareness cone that we've gone by now, that people know health care is expensive and that, you, you know, you're obligated to pay it when you come in and that insurance is important and it's important to understand, like, what those costs are. Where we're at now is okay. Now that I understand that it's that it's uh, expensive, how am I going to afford it, and how am I going to pay for it? So you're seeing hospitals create these quote patient engagement digital front doors, if you will, to where they're you know mobily um, uh, sending out messages saying, hey, would you like to make your appointment? Um, would you like to leave a credit card on file? You know, create an account. Think Amazon there if you want, or Amazon Prime. You know, anything you have will hit that card. And you'll get a notice about it. You can look at it. And you can decline the charge or accept the charge. You're seeing very sophisticated things starting to happen. Um, do you need a payment plan? Um, do you need loans? They're tailored to your financial position. Um, uh, do you need discounting? Do you apply? Do you qualify for charity? It's becoming much more of a push 
to where instead of just sending a bill in the mail um, and hoping that, you know, on the third one that goes out, the patient will get, will pay you. It's important. There's still barriers there. I think Chris come from a, from a uh, affordability standpoint. I mean, $10,000 is still not something a lot of people can just, you know, pull out of their pocket and afford. They have to pay it over time. So we're seeing an extension of debt. We're seeing loans getting set up at hospitals in the three to five year range. Those are automobile loans. I mean, if you think about just the, the term of that, that's, that's for a healthcare bill. Um, so uh, patients are going to become a payer, um, but it's not going to be for the things that you just buy every day. It, these are going to be like when you go buy a car. And we love when we get a car. We don't like that coupon book or those payments that we have to make later. And you're going to see healthcare start to structure itself to that because that's what healthcare bills cost for the most part. And, and, uh, and you'll see those bills start to um, grow and the payment mechanisms around them uh, evolve as well. You've started to touch on this um, a little bit, and I just want to go ahead into it. Medical sure. debt. How, how, yeah. how, how concerned are you about medical debt in this country? I'm very concerned. I think, you know, Medicare beneficiary bad debt surpassed $8 billion last year. So that's just on the Medicare side. Um, and um, I know that because we've got some tools at TransUnion that, that help hospitals recover some of that. Medicare's actually got an interesting program where they uh, refund unpaid co-payments, co-insurance deductibles. <laughs> so um, uh, that, 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 you know, that $8 billion, there's a way to get back at it. Um, you know, I think uh, medical debt's a, a, a large issue. I, I think a lot of people go into medical debt. Um, one of these times, Chris, when I'm doing one of these interviews, I, I hope I don't, I won't have to say this, but, but bankruptcy, the number one cause is still medical bills. Hmm. Um, and, um, and cause they're unexpected and they're large. Um, and, uh, and so I'm concerned about how, um, the industry is going to do with financially clearing as patients. Cause, um, one of my mantras when I was at the hospital and my CFOs as well was patients should always pay within their ability. And if they can't, your charity program should pick up that slack and figure it out. So if you've got things structured right, you should be able to get patients into some sort of tailored funding mechanism that matches what their financial position is. And um, I don't think uh, we're doing a good job of that across 100% of the patients. If you ask hospitals, they'd say they're getting it what they can with what they have. But that's a way to prevent medical debt is to really, um, you know, stratify that bad debt portfolio, get patients appropriately classified into the charity program, set them up on those payment plans, um, uh, get them to the right level of care. You're seeing a lot of tra uh, traction in that now. Um, rules like EMTALA kind of hinder a hospital's ability, ties their hands a little because uh, they have to treat that patient when they're there instead of offering other options, as silly as that sounds. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you come into the emergency room, they've got to stabilize and treat you and yeah. the costs drop. There isn't a, there isn't a U-turn there, but imagine, Oh, Hey, you just have a fever. This really isn't appropriate for the emergency room. Here's an urgent care. Or here's Dr. Wilson's number. Call him in the morning. The, the, the liability and the, the legislation barriers that are there are, are, are too prevalent to prevent it. So you see a lot of medical debt coming from emergency room visits. I'd say that's probably the majority of them, that, especially ones that turn into an inpatient admission, and it's growing. I've got numbers at my desk I can get you later if you want. And, and incredible. I mean, it, 
you know, there. you're starting to get to the, to not, maybe not the root cause, but among the root causes. I mean, you said, uh, you know, 15 minutes ago how one of the major problems with our healthcare system or our, is we, you know, because of the cost, we all put off care, you know, and until we try to self diagnose, et cetera, until it's too late. And then we go to the emergency room and that becomes kind of a primary care facility. As you just noted right now, that then has a, a pile on effect of that's really expensive care. And all of a sudden for a fever, in your example, where I could have seen Dr. Wilson um, at, you know, whatever cost, I'm now in the emergency room for, I don't know, 10x the cost of Dr. Wilson. And and yep. you've now set up, it's it's really a vicious uh, circle that you've um, identified. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's lots of factors in cost, but that's certainly one of the big ones. There's you know, pharma, the, the, the yes, everyone loves yes, to hate, right? Yes. Um, and, and then there, there's high technology too. We're a Burger King healthcare society. I want it right now, right away, um, every day, you know, and, and, and by that, I mean, um, it's great that we have such great technological uh, advances and everything with implantables and MRIs and CT scans and things, but those are two, four, $5 million machines that um, the hospitals have to buy to compete with each other. And then that cost gets passed down to the patient too, just because, so, we, you know, there's ownership at all levels, I think, in healthcare costs. We've got population stuff. The book talks about the silver tsunami. Um, we've got underpayments as well. As we expand Medicaid for coverage or through the ACA, that's actually an indirect driver of high, high healthcare costs as well. Um, those plans are awesome to give someone coverage, and I think it's great. The problem is the funding mechanisms behind them actually put the hospital in a poorer financial position than if they had commercial insurance and self-pay may have opened up some doors uh, as well. I think having expansion and having the ACA plans and things in place is great, but um, the patients can't afford a lot of the plans that are set up that way. They have extremely high deductibles, the six, seven, $8,000 range. Um, and, and that turns into medical debt quickly. Um, and I think on the Medicaid side is as we've expanded these states, they're paying 10 cents on the dollar where a commercial payer maybe pays 40 or 50 cents on the dollar. And you, and you wonder which one of these things are helping or not um, as you go. I think it's great to get folks on coverage, but we've got to look at the next step, which, okay, now that they've got coverage, can they afford the plan that they're on? If they can't afford the plan that they're on, does that make it better or worse for them? So on and so forth. So this patient as payer concept really needs to be one of the first decisions that it looks at as we look at just the overall healthcare cost package and how, Hospital getting worse because nobody that I'm aware of is making money on Medicaid, um, and it, it actually becomes a loss leader um, in a lot of hospitals. Pa hospitals want it because because it allows them to to treat and get some payment, but the the payment structure that comes from the states and the government isn't covering the costs that the hospital has to incur, and so it creates a debt issue as well. And so to to close out, let me pick up just a little bit on uh, the Medicaid question and more broadly. Um, a policy idea that, um, at, you know, we're at the beginning of a new political cycle, and I, I don't uh, need you or I'm asking, and I'm not asking you to um, take political sides, but I, I am asking you as someone who thinks about the healthcare industry, you know, I guess 24-7, uh, maybe you take an hour off once yeah. a week, um, you, you know, what, what, what do you think? The, obviously, um, there is a new, it's not a new idea, the, the, there is an advancing idea, um, particularly among uh, Democrats. Democrats and some of the new Democrats who've taken office around uh, Medicare for all. 
And as we yep. enter this new political cycle, um, that idea that, uh, you know, was kind of a little bit out there even four years ago or two years ago, I guess at this point, three years ago, is really coming more center of the plate. Um, without assessing the politics, what about the policy? Um, would this be helpful? Sure. Is it practical? What, what, what do you, what's your take on the idea of Medicare for all? Yeah, so I think having health insurance um, um, that uh, can get as many Americans on it is good. And so, um, and as I mentioned before, they, they need to be structured in a way to where those costs are very transparent and there's funding and assistance mechanisms for things. An example of that, just on an extreme, is, is, is if, a, if, a, if a single payer plan came out that had a $15,000 deductible on it, um, you know, I don't know that that would necessarily help a lot of people that are going to the emergency room and inpatient <clears throat> necessarily because they couldn't afford it anyway. But the copays and things for the, the primary care and maybe some incentives there would help. Um, I think, and this, and I, and I, I firmly believe this, that you will absolutely see healthcare become the number one um, uh, 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 debated um, uh, platform in the 2020 election. I, I, I firmly believe that. I think you'll hear about where pre-existing conditions go. I think you'll hear about um, the effectiveness of Medicaid expansion and the ACA. And then you'll certainly hear from the Democratic side. And there's about six or seven ideas right now, all the way from Bernie um, down to some old things that uh, Paul Ryan, who, who's not in a seat anymore, um, has came up with um, uh, from a – I'm sorry, not Paul uh, – uh, Lamar, Lamar Alexander and Murray, some some other some other uh, plans that are there, uh, and, and Paul Ryan's plan on the Republican side has some ideas. It's a better way plan in terms of you know how to replace um, some of the things that are with the ACA. So what what the difficulty is in our country is that we are very polarized on this subject. Um, mm -hmm. um, I think uh, uh, there's an entitlement um, uh, discussion on the on the on the Democratic side in terms of that healthcare is a, a universal right and that we should we should figure out how to how to how to offer that and and fund it in a way that that there's a lot of equality there. Um, on the Democratic side, they they want or the Republican side they want to. Um, look at entitlement reform. So is Medicare and Medicaid uh, doing things in an effective way? There's a lot of spend happening. Um, is the ACA necessary is a question they're asking. Um, is, there, is, is there things that could be done with Medicaid block grants um, and, and to where there's more control at the state level um, in terms of, of managing health care in, in ways that we did decades ago? Um, <clears throat> I, what I think is going to happen is you're going to see uh, a, a few bills get presented um, early in, in, in February, March of 2020 um, uh, after, the, after the election happens. I mean, and a lot of this is going to depend on, on whether things stay the same or change, whether President Trump gets reelected or not, and whether the, the House and Senate stay in the, in the houses that they're in now because they're split. If they're split, and you know, I think it's going to be really hard to get anything done no matter who the president is, um, if, they, if things become aligned one way or the other, you may see some changes happen either in, in health care reform or expansion. Um, there's some bipartisan things in there. I always like to cheer people up when I talk about this. Um, there's a lot of attention even right now on drug pricing, which I think is great. I think they're really trying to – they're not beating up on the pharmaceutical companies, but they're trying to have some rational discussions about why a drug can go from $5 to 500 in four years you know, and understand – the legalities and the equality and the and the and the under and the and the the profitability of those types of things and trying to put caps on that. 
There's a surprise out out of network bill that's even being debated now, which is great. That's the you know, hey, you were under anesthesia, you went to the hospital, and no one told you that Dr. Smith is in Nebraska or in in you know another county in Nebraska and doesn't participate with this plan, so he's quote out of network. His bill comes in the mail and it's fifty grand, and you didn't know. Um, and they're trying to put up some rules about notifications and caps on out of network bill balance billing from the docs or the insurance companies or, or, or the providers themselves. So those things, there's agreement on. I believe it or not, I think there's agreement on pre-existing conditions now. I think um, the Republicans took a pretty good backlash with that um, over the over the last election. And so um, that, that's a good thing, I think. I think, you know, pre-existing conditions are something that's just tough, right? When you're, when you're off insurance and you've got to get back in and try to get some coverage and you're really in a bad way, um, that's difficult for you to get affordable insurance if you've got some things going on. And moral hazards and adverse selection things happen with pre-existing conditions that the funding mechanisms have to look at, but uh, that's where we're at. As far as, uh, you know, I'll end with single payer. What I, what I would encourage everyone, including you, Chris, to look at is, is the book talks about who pays the monkey, you know, who's paying the monkey. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and it's an old organ grinder example that I heard when I was an insurance company, we were building health plans, you know, these health plans that have these co-insurance and co-payments and, 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 and uh, reimbursement deductions, the cost is still there, and one one could argue that there's a huge opportunity there, and and the funding's still there, but there's still this gap between them, and who's paying that monkey? So if we have a a, a Medicare for all or a single payer plan, is that a tax fund? Is that a out of pocket spend from the consumer? Um, is that a, a a fundamental reduction in the scope and amount of services that are provided at the provider level? Um, you know, those are questions that, as voters, we all have to kind of look at, right, and evaluate. Um, I think we're short-sighted as a country when it comes to some of these bills, and I mean that respectfully, but it's, yeah, coverage for all, let's do it. Well, what what would that mean to you financially is a question you need to ask, and what does that mean to our country financially as well? Because we, we have a deficit, and it's trillions of dollars, not billions, and I don't know that people fathom some of the, the, the magnitude of some of these decisions as they go. I'm honestly on the fence with some of it, um, just personally. Um, I think there's benefits to, to both sides of these arguments. We've got a curb spend. I think everybody would agree on that from the Republican side. So I, I agree with some of the things that are happening over there. And then I think on the Democratic side, we've got to figure out a way to get folks that need insurance that can't afford it on it. And then that should balance out this risk pool problem. And we've tried different things and, and, um, there's some innovative things you've seen, like the state of Massachusetts. You, um, when you go get your driver's license, we've all done this. You have to present an insurance card for your car, your motor insurance. Yep. They require you to um, present health insurance. Novel concept, if you think about it. You can't get a driver's license in the state of Massachusetts if you don't have health insurance. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that you know they, they, they send you the state-run plan and things to get it if you can't afford it so that you can do it. But there's ways to get at some of this stuff versus just you know, the, the red button, I'll call it, where you, the easy button, the, the, yeah. let's make a single player plan. <laughs> yeah. um, one, I'll end on this. Half of our country is on a single player plan right now. Medicaid and Medicare covers about half the country. So, so, you know, you could say we're halfway there or halfway not, you know, so that, that always adds perspective. There's a lot of people don't know that, you know, we have a single payer plan right now with Medicare and Medicaid and TRICARE and, and the VA. So it's there. Um, it's just a matter of how much that gets expanded. I've seen some interesting models with like buying into Medicaid and such that make a little more sense than having just this universal plan that's like Medicare. 
Well, it, that, it's a, that was a long answer. Well, <laughs> it, it's a it's a long answer, but it's a thorough answer, and it's a really complicated yeah. question. And as you said at the beginning, um, this is you know very likely the central issue in our country. You know, not just right now, but uh, over the coming years, and understanding all the complexities um, and and what's possible is incumbent upon all of us. So uh, I thank you. Thank you for helping uh, explain, um, you know, a significant portion of it and, uh, you know, for the ideas going forward. Thank you. You have a great day, Chris.